The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good morning, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTUV, WXYZ people, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S.-occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at <clears throat> SonsofLibertyMedia.com, and for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warned you about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us. This Tuesday morning, uh, if you'd like to check us out online, please do so, sonsoflibertyradio.com and sonsoflibertymedia.com. In fact, if you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, please head over to sonsoflibertymedia.com, scroll right down there on the right side of the page, and you can enlarge that. We're going live. That's right. You can see the face is made for radio. And also check out that live feed on my Twitter account, FPPTim. Periscope is setting brush fires. Facebook is Bradley Dean SOL. Our YouTube channel is B Dean Sons of Liberty. We're also on the front page of beforeitsnews.com, dlive.tv at the Sons of Liberty, and you can also catch us on Spreely Gab, MeWe Minds, and USA.life at Sons of Liberty or Sons of Liberty Media. Um, <clears throat> we do have the phone lines open today. If you want to call in and interrupt, that's fine. I'm happy to take your call. In fact, as Bradley said on his show yesterday, uh, we like to hear from you guys. So if you want to call in, that's great. 215-TOP-TALK, 215-867-8255. Let me ask the question today, is America on the verge of the Battle of Lexington 2.0? Some of you listening will know exactly what I'm talking about. Others will be like, the Battle of what? Um, so we're going to do something a, a little different. Now, this is not my idea, but it was something I got this past Sunday from Pastor Chuck Baldwin. And one of those things that uh, that Baldwin gave was about giving the message of Jonas Clark, the pastor who about 70 of the men who attended his church were in that first real battle at Lexington Green. Uh, several of his men lost their lives doing that in the battle where the shot heard around the world took place the day after Paul Revere rode through the streets and warned the British were coming. And folks, they weren't coming for the taxes. They were coming for the guns. They were coming for the cannons. They were coming for the black powder. They were coming for the muskets. They were coming for their arms, their ability to defend themselves. So with that said, I hope you'll indulge me to read to you a piece of history, a piece of Christian history in our land. This is a sermon 
from Pastor Jonas. And there's a little introduction, and then what we're going to do is, as we archive the show, I'm going to put the text of this sermon, so that if you're interested in following up on it and reading it again yourself, you'll be able to do that. That'll be at sonslibertymedia.com later this morning. With that said, let me give you a little brief introduction, and we'll go, and if I have to run over just a couple of minutes, I'll do it, but I'm not going to be providing a lot of commentary. In fact, I'm not going to be providing any commentary unless you call in. That's that's the only, re- the only way I will know uh, that I'll break and depart from what we're doing, okay, uh, is if you call in. With that said, Jonas Clark was born on Christmas Day in Lexington, Massachusetts. He graduated from Cambridge University at the age of 22 and was ordained as a minister three years later. While serving as a minister, he also worked a farm of 60 acres in order to supply his family with food. He continued as the pastor of the church at Lexington for half a century. Clark was an avid American patriot before and during the American War for Independence. He actively wrote papers related to pressing issues such as the Stamp Act, and many of the leading patriots stayed at his home and sought his counsel. In fact, both John Hancock and Samuel Adams were at his home on April 18, 1775, when Paul Revere made his famous midnight ride to alert them that they must flee or face being caught by the coming British. Upon hearing the news, they turned to Pastor Clark and asked if the people of Lexington would fight, to which he replied, I've trained them for this very hour. I love that. A pastor who not only fed them spiritually, but prepared them for battle, to defend the women, the children, the oppressed around them. The following morning, some 70 men from his church faced over 700 British soldiers. Ten to one. And when the shot heard round the world was over, 18 Americans were laying on the ground, both black and white, patriots, all members of his church. Clark's influence continued throughout the war and afterwards, and he helped pin the Massachusetts Constitution. Sadly, the people of Massachusetts have abandoned so much of that. Clark published many sermons over his lifetime, including the following sermon, which I want to read to you right now, one year, or excuse me, on the one-year anniversary of the famous Battle of Lexington. This was preached on April 19, 1776. These are the words of Pastor Jonas Clark. To commemorate the murder, bloodshed, and commencement of hostilities between Great Britain and America in that town by a brigade of troops of George III under command of Lieutenant Colonel Smith on the 19th of April, 1775, to which is added a brief narrative of the principal transactions of that day. This is Pastor Jonas Clark. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed. For the Lord dwelleth in Zion. Um. Let me blow a few things up here so that you're not just looking at my ugly mug all the time. These will be some images from Lexington Green from artists. Next to the acknowledgement of the existence of a deity, there is no one principle of greater importance in religion, and he's speaking about the Christian religion, folks. That's what he's speaking about. 
than a realizing belief of the divine government and providence to realize that God is governor among the nations, that his government is wise and just, and that all our times and changes are in his hands and at his disposal will have the happiest tendency to excite the most grateful acknowledgments of his goodness and prosperity, the most cordial resignation to his paternal discipline and adversity, and the most placid composure and equanimity of mind in all the changes, all the changing seasons or scenes of life. Inspired with this divine principle, we shall contemplate with grateful wonder and delight the goodness of God in prosperous events and devoutly acknowledge and adore his sovereign hand in days of darkness and perplexity. And when the greatest difficulties press, this will be a source of comfort and support under private afflictions and trials. And this shall encourage our hope in God and trust in his name under public calamities and judgments. Yea, however dark and mysterious the ways of providence may be or may appear, Yet nothing shall overwhelm the mind or destroy the trust and hope of those that realize the government of heaven, that realize that an all-wise God is seated on the throne and that all things are well appointed for his chosen people, for them that fear him. This principle and these sentiments, therefore, being of so great use and importance in religion under the various dispensations of providence, one great design of the present discourse is to rouse and excite us to a religious acknowledgement of the hand of God in those distressing scenes of murder, bloodshed, and war. We are met to commemorate upon this solemn occasion. The passage before us, it is humbly conceived, is well suited to confirm our faith, to excite our trust, and encourage our hope under such awful dispensations as it points out the method of God's government and the course of his providence towards the enemies and oppressors of his people and the fate of those that shed innocent blood and at the same time represents his peculiar care of his church and his chosen and the assurance they have when under oppression of restoration and establishment and that God himself will plead their cause and both cleanse and avenge their innocent blood Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. It is not necessary to inquire as to the immediate occasion or literal fulfillment of the prophecy before us with respect to the particular nations or kingdoms here mentioned. It is sufficient to our present purpose to observe that Egypt was early noted in Scripture history for oppressing God's people and causing them to serve the cruel bondage. Edom also is mentioned as guilty of, excuse me, of violence towards them, and expressing a most embittered hatred and revenge against them. And from the expressions in the text, it is natural to suppose that there had been some, if not many, instances of their shedding innocent blood in their land. Israel, God's chosen people, had often suffered violence from both states, 
so that we have good reason to suppose that both Egypt and Edom in the language of Scripture prophecy in the text and other passages may intend not Egypt or Edom only, but proverbially in a more general sense, enemies, persecutors, or oppressors of God's people who violated their rights and liberties, religious and civil, and by the sword of persecution or oppression shed innocent blood in their land. Prophecies, especially those that are or may be of general use to the people of God, are but seldom seldom literal, either in prediction or fulfillment. They are rather of use to force you great and interesting events as taking place in the world. In such time and manner and upon such persons, societies, nations, and kingdoms as shall display the justice and equity of divine government and the peculiar care which heaven takes of the church and people of God for their correction, instruction, preservation, or establishment. Agreeably, St. Peter speaks strongly for this method of explaining and improving Scripture prophecies, where he says expressly that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. It is therefore rational to suppose that though prophecies may have special or immediate reference to particular persons, societies, nations, or kingdoms, and to events in which they may be immediately interested, yet they may be fitly considered as having a further and more important interpretation, which may be of general use for the direction and edification of God's church and people in all ages to the end. In this general sense, therefore, you will permit me to consider the prophecy in the passage before us, and thus understood, it is easy to see several things suggested in it worthy of our most serious attention and religious improvement upon such an occasion as this. Um, I was going to bring up a different picture here, and things are running a little slow here, so I apologize for that. In the first place, it is, admitted, is it, it is admitted that for wise purposes, a just God may permit powerful enemies or oppressors to injure, do violence into, and distress his people, and to carry their measures of violence and oppression to such lengths among them as to strike at their life and shed innocent blood in their land. As God is the sovereign of the world and exercises his government for the glory of his name and the good of the whole, so he hath a pattern, or excuse me, a paternal concern for the special benefit and improvement of his church and people. All creatures are his servants, all of them. And God accomplishes his designs and carries his counsels to effect by what means and instruments he pleases. It is with him alone who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working to bring good out of evil. When God designs the reproof and correction of his people, he can exercise his holy discipline in various ways and by various means, as shall be answer the purposes of his government. This holy discipline is accordingly exercised, sometimes by the immediate hand of providence, as in wasting sickness, parching drought, awful and desolating earthquakes or other judgments which are immediately from God himself. Or this may be done more immediately 
by the instrumentality of his creatures and even the wicked and those that love the wages of unrighteousness, that delight in oppression, waste and spoil, or thirst for innocent blood, may be improved as the rod in his hand to correct or punish the sins of his people. With this view, the oppressor is permitted to injure, insult, oppress, and lay waste in a land, and to carry his measures to the shedding of innocent blood. With the same design does a sovereign God give the enemy a commission in war with fire and sword to distress and to destroy. In such public calamities, it is true, it often comes to pass that as individuals, the innocent are involved and suffer with the guilty, and sometimes the innocent alone. But however unjust or cruel the oppressor, and those that thirst for blood may be, in contriving and carrying into execution their wicked, oppressive, or bloody designs, they are no other than instruments in providence and the rod in the hand of the great governor of the world for the reproof and correction of his people. These things happen not by accident or chance but by the direction or permission of that God who is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. When Israel sinned and did evil in the sight of the Lord, it is said, quote, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers <clears throat> excuse me, that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, and they were greatly distressed, end quote. Hence also the Assyrian king is expressly called the rod of God's anger for the correction of his people. And thus Egypt and Edom in the prophecy before us in committing violence upon the children of Judah and the shedding of innocent blood in their land are held up to the view as the rod in God's hand for the correction, reproof, and instruction of his people. Agreeably, this is the language of a just and faithful God In such dispensations, hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? It matters not. Therefore, who are the immediate instruments of violence and oppression, or by whose hands the blood of innocent persons is shed, or their substance wasted and habitations destroyed, not yet from what motives or views such acts of oppression and cruelty are perpetuated, or, or, excuse me, perpetrated with respect to the religious improvement that God expects us or any other people to make of such heavy dispensations. Tis God in His hand, tis God in His providence, which we are first of all concerned to notice, acknowledge, and improve. However unjust our sufferings may be from man, yet when we realize the hand of God, the great and wise governor of the world, as concerned herein, silence and submission is our indispensable duty. And no murmur or complaint ought ever to be heard But with reverence and humility, it becomes us to bow before the Lord and adoring his sovereignty, ascribe righteousness to our God. 
Neither the insults of oppressors, nor the flames of our once delightful habitations, nor even the innocent blood of our brethren slain should move to a murmuring word or an angry thought against God, his government, or providence. Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The more grievously we are smitten, the more deeply we are affected. The more carefully should we endeavor to realize our dependence upon God. The more religiously acknowledge his hand, and the more earnestly return to him that smites. This is the lesson of instruction which God expects we should learn by such bitter dispensations, and this the improvement he looks for in us and his people in order to the restoration of his favor and our redemption from enemies and oppressors who threaten to lay waste and destroy. May these things then be deeply impressed on our hearts. But I pass. Secondly, to observe the fate of oppressors and the sentence of heaven against those that do violence to God's people and shed innocent blood in their land. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood. In their land. However just it may be in God to correct his people, and whatever right is ascribed to him of improving the wicked as the rod of his hand to correct, or the sword to punish them, yet this alters not the nature of their oppressive designs, neither does it abate their guilt or alleviate their crime. In these measures of injustice, violence, or cruelty by the people of God are distressed. Thus God speaks of the Assyrian king, a prince noted in history for his avarice and ambition, cruelty and oppression, and in him of the Assyrian state, whose character was included in that of its king, saying, quote, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him to an hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil, and to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy. Wherefore it shall come to pass, that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion, and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. And so it came to pass. For this power, that which such a mighty hand and for so long a time oppressed God's people and other nations, in God's due time, felt the weight of the iron yoke and received double for all the injustice, oppression, and cruelty it had exercised towards others. In this, and many other circumstances with which history abounds, it is easy to see the fate of the enemies of God's people and oppressors of mankind. But we need not go from the text for satisfaction in this matter. In the words of the prophecy before us, we have the sentence of heaven against the oppressors of God's people and the doom of those common enemies of mankind pronounced and the reason thereof assigned in the clearest terms. Egypt shall be a desolation. Edom shall be a desolate wilderness 
for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. The Lord is a God that loveth righteousness and hateth iniquity in whatever shape or character it appears, injustice, oppression, and violence, much less the shedding of innocent blood, shall not pass unnoticed by the just governor of the world. Sooner or later, a just recompense will be made upon such workers of iniquity. Yea, though hand joined in hand in measures of oppression and violence against God's people, and though their advice, ambition, and lawless thirst for power and domination may carry them on till their steps be marked with, excuse me, with innocent blood, yet certain it is, they shall not finally go unpunished. For a time indeed, and but a time, such workers of unrighteousness, such destroyers of mankind shall practice and prosper. But vengeance flow is vengeance sure. Their ways are marked before God. Their punishment and destruction are sealed in His presence. And the time is hastening when destruction without remedy shall be their portion. The truth of these sentiments hath often been verified in providence, and the proudest princes and the most powerful states have been taught by severe, by faithful experience, that desolation from the Lord awaits the impiety of those that do violence to his people and shed innocent blood in their land. Here, Then we may see the light in which that people or nation or to be considered that walk in the ways of oppression and that thirst for and shed innocent blood. Here we may also see the ruin to which they are hastening, the awful judgments that await them and the great reason they have to fear the sentence of heaven denounced against them in the prophecy before us and its literal fulfillment upon them which naturally naturally leads in the last place. Thirdly, to observe in the prophecy before us the peculiar care God takes of his church and people and the assurance they have, even when actually suffering violence and under the cruel hand of oppression, of redemption, restoration, and establishment, and that God himself will plead their cause and both cleanse and avenge their innocent blood. Nothing can be more directly expressive of this sentiment or a firmer ground of assurance for the confirmation of the faith and hope of God's chosen people in the belief of it than the promise and prophecy concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the text. While Egypt and Edom, while the enemies and oppressors of God's people are doomed to that desolation they so justly deserve, The strongest assurances are given that Judah shall dwell forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I saith God will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. The words are plain and need no comment. They speak the language of scripture, fact and experience for the confirmation of the faith and hope of God's church and chosen in the days of perplexity and darkness and when actually under the injustice, violence and cruelty of veteran enemies or bloodthirsty oppressors. Here are two things. 
for the inducement and confirmation of the faith and hope of God's church and people in such times of darkness and distress, which are well worthy, serious notice, and attention. First, God's word and promise, in which he assures his people that notwithstanding the violence of their enemies against them and the distress and sorrow their oppressors may have caused them by shedding innocent blood among them, yet they shall never avail to overthrow or destroy them. But they shall assuredly be redeemed and delivered out of their hands and restored and established as his church and people in a flourishing state. And then secondly, to leave no doubt upon the minds as to the fulfillment of this blessed promise, a gracious God condescends to explain himself in the clearest terms possible and to satisfy them that nothing should fail of all that had been promised. He assures them that he would take the work into his own hands and see the accomplishment of it himself, that thus it might appear to them and to the world of mankind that the Lord was with them and dwelt in their mit- in the midst of them. Judah shall dwell forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. Words well suited to cheer and comfort the sinking spirits of God's afflicted, oppressed people, and words which might rouse the faith and give a spring of the hope of the most feeble and faint-hearted among God's people in the depths of distress. For God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Hath he promised and shall not he perform? Hath he spoken and shall he not bring it to pass? Blood is said to be cleansed or avenged when justice hath taken place, and the murderer is punished. God may be said to cleanse the blood, excuse me, cleanse the innocent blood which may have been shed among his people. But the sword of oppressors or enemies, when in providence he undertakes for them, avenges their blood upon them that that slew them and reduces them to reason or ruin. The sword is an appeal to heaven. When, therefore, the arms of the people are eventually successful or by the immediate interposition of providence, their enemies and oppressors are subdued and destroyed. When a people are reinstated in peace upon equitable terms and established in the enjoyment of all their just rights and liberties, both civil and sacred, then may it be said that the Lord hath cleansed their innocent blood, and then will it be manifestly evident that their God is with them and dwelleth in their midst. Now this God hath given his people the strongest assurances in the prophecy before us, and these assurances are confirmed by the word of God to his people throughout the sacred scriptures, so that, though for their sins and the multitude of their transgressions, a righteous God may justly afflict and correct his people by the hand of oppressors, and permit their most important rights to be violated, their substance destroyed, their habitations to be laid waste, or even the innocent blood of their brethren to be wantonly shed in their land. Yet still, he is their God in the midst of them and will readily appear for their help. 
when they return from their evil ways, acknowledge his hand and implore his mercy and assistance. This holy discipline is no more than what God hath given his people to expect as a reproof of their declensions and as a means of bringing them to a sense of their dependence upon him. Such dispensations are so far from being in evidence that God hath forsaken his people, given them up, or forgotten to be gracious, that they are rather to be considered as demonstration of his paternal care and faithfulness towards them. Agreeably in his covenant with his servant David and his house, this method of conduct is expressly stipulated as a token of his special care and faithfulness and of the remembrance of the covenant he had made. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. And such visitations, God evidently intends the best good of his people, not their destruction, but their reformation. And if they see his hand, humble themselves under it and seek him aright. God will not fail to remember his covenant and his promises for them and his due time appear in his power and glory for their relief. Yea, the bowels of his mercy will be moved at their distress, and his language will be the same as unto his people of old, when under the Egyptian yoke they were caused to serve with cruel bondage. Quote, I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt, and have heard their groaning and with cruel bondage. And to the entourage, excuse me, I jumped ahead there. I have heard their groaning and am come down to deliver them. End quote. And to encourage his saints and people to trust on his name and to hope in his mercy, a gracious God hath most explicitly promised them his presence, direction, and assistance in all their distresses. But they ever so numerous, ever so great, his language is merciful, condescending, and endearing. Especially when by the prophet Isaiah, he says to his afflicted people, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burnt. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, and the Holy One of Israel thy Savior. From these passages of sacred writ, it appears that as God in infinite wisdom sees fit to exercise his people with trials and afflictions and sometimes call them to pass through the depths of adversity, adversity. so he hath provided for their support and given them the greatest reason to hope for his presence and assistance and the strongest assurance that they shall be carried through all and in the end rejoice in God as the Holy One of Israel, their Savior. In short, nothing can be more expressive of God's care of his people in distress and of the solid ground they have to hope for redemption and salvation in his way and time, which are always best. We may add that further to confirm our faith and encourage our hope, 
and those blessed assurances of God's presence with his people, even in their heaviest trials and greatest perplexities, we might safely appeal to the experience of his chosen in every age from the beginning of the present time, or from the beginning to the present time. This will show how easy it is with an infinite wise God to bring good out of evil and by the overruling hand of providence to cause the counsels and measures of persecutors and oppressors to hasten the redemption and establishment of the injured and the oppressed, as well as to bring upon themselves that confusion and desolation they so justly deserve. And this will also prove how truly applicable the words of the prophet are to God's chosen people and their distresses in every age when speaking of the large experience Israel had had of the tender love and faithful care of a merciful God exercised toward them. He says that, quote, in all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Nothing is more evident from history and experience than God's care of his people and the wisdom of his providence in causing the violence and oppression of their enemies to operate for their advantage and promote their more speedy deliverance. This appears too plain from various instances to admit of dispute. The children of Israel would not have been so early persuaded to have left the gardens of Egypt or the fertile fields of the land of Goshen and in the face of every danger attempted to free themselves from the Egyptian yoke had not their burdens been increased to an unreasonable degree by the violence and cruelty of those that oppressed them in that house of bondage. And Pharaoh and his armies would never have met that disgraceful defeat and awful destruction which overtook them in the Red Sea had they not been infatuated to pursue their measures of oppression and violence even after it was evident that their cause was desperate and that God was against them. Christendom would never have been roused from that state of ignorance and darkness and slavery it was in. The Protestant League would never have been would never enter, excuse me the protestant league would never been entered into with such firmness and resolution to shake off the papal yoke and redeem both church and state from the hierarchy of rome had not the enormities and violence of that power by which they had been so long oppressed rose to an intolerable height and put them upon the expedient The United States of Holland would not have been very easily induced to have opposed the power of Spain when the meridian of its strength and glory, much less to have attempted at independence of that kingdom, had they not been effectually convinced by a long series of indi- uh, excuse me, injuries and oppression and numberless violations of their most sacred rights that there was no other remedy. Britons would never have resisted their kings and flown to arms in defense of their invaluable rights and liberties had they not felt the weight of the iron rod of oppression and tyranny and seen their danger and absolute necessity of such resistance to prevent the total deprivation of all that they held dear and sacred as free men, Christians, and a free people. 
Charles would not have lost his kingdom and finally his life upon the scaffold by the hand of the executioner, nor James been obliged in disgrace to quit his throne and abdicate the government of the kingdom. Had it not been for their own violent counsels and measures to oppress and enslave the people whom they were called to govern and to protect. Our fathers would never have forsook their native land, delightsome habitations and fair possessions, and in the face of almost every danger and distress, sought a safe retreat for the enjoyment of religious and civil, civil liberty among savage beasts and more savage men in the inhospitable wilds of America had they not been drove from thence by the violence and cruelty of persecutors and oppressors in church and state. The hierarchy of the church, by which they looked upon the rights of conscience infringed and arbitrary measures of the state, by which they esteemed their civil liberties abridged, if not grossly violated, rather than any views of worldly gain, as hath been in, enviously hinted by some, were the principal causes of their immigration and the hope and expectation of deliverance therefrom gave the spring to the hazardous undertaking. And when heaven so far smiled upon the enterprise as to give them footing in the land, and when after natural hardships and dangers, toils and distresses, they had secured a possession for themselves in posterity and obtained a confirmation of those civil and religious liberties they had fought, still retaining a filial affection towards their native country, they seemed to have nothing more at heart than that Americans might be happy in the enjoyment of their just rights and liberties as men and Christians under the protection of Britain, and that Britain might be flourishing and glorious in receiving the profits of the labor, trade, and industry of Americans, and that the connection of America and Britain and her dependence in this way upon the parent state might have been preserved and violent to the end of time. And it may be added that there is no just ground to suppose that it would have ever entered the heart of Americans to have desired a dissolution of so happy a connection with the mother country or to have fought independence of Britain had they not been urged and even forced upon such an expedient by measures of oppression and violence and the shedding of innocent blood. But alas... Ill-judged counsels, ill-fated measures of Britain and the British administration with respect to America have broken in upon the pleasing scene and fatally destroyed the happy prospects of both Britain and America. At the close of the last war, we arrived at that happy period to which our ancestors looked with earnest expectation as the utmost of their wishes, as the answer of their prayers, and the reward of all their toils and suffering. The savages were subdued, those restless neighbors. The French were subjected. And this wide, extended continent seemed to be given us for a possession. And we were ready to say there was none to make us afraid. But how uncertain the most blooming prospects. How vain, how disappointing the most rational as well as raised expectations in this imperfect state scarcely emerged from the dangers and fatigues of a long and distressing war, we are unexpectedly involved in perplexities and anxieties of a different kind, which by degrees have decreased 
till they are become more serious, dangerous, and distressing than any ever yet felt by God's people in this once happy land. Through the crafty insinuations, false representations, and diabolical counsels of the enemies of God's people, and the common rights of mankind in America and Britain, acts of providence, or excuse me, acts of oppression are made by the Parliament of England in which we are not represented, which deeply affect our most valuable privileges. In open violation of our chartered rights, these acts of unrighteousness and oppression are attempted to be carried into execution in these colonies. After various threats of coercive measures, a military force is sent to enforce them. And innocent, loyal people are distressed, and every art which with wit or malice could invent is used to flatter or fright, to divine or disenhearten, and finally subject us to the will of a power not known in our charters, or even in the British Constitution itself. And as one of the natural consequences of standing armies being stationed in populous cities for such execrable purposes, many of the inhabitants of Boston are insulted. At length, under pretense of ill treatment, the streets of that once flourishing city are stained with the innocent blood of a number of our brethren, wantonly or cruelly slain by those sons of oppression and violence. Upon the high resentments of the people in consequence of this horrid outrage and the violence there was, for a short time, a pause in their measures, for a moment the oppressors themselves seemed to be struck with the horrid effects of their own iniquitous proceedings and stand aghast at the sight of the innocent blood that they had shed. Perhaps they were not, at that time, so thoroughly hardened in sin as they have proved themselves since. But this pause seemed to be not to repent of their evil deeds, but rather to collect themselves and devise some measures more effectual. For so far from giving over to the execrable design, the plan of oppression is renewed. New acts are passed to distress and enslave us. The lust of domination appears no longer in disguise, but with open face. The starving port bill comes forth. Gage arrives with his forces by sea and land to carry it into execution with vigor and severity. And to complete the scene, and at once to make thorough work of oppression and tyranny, immediately followed the bills that subvert the Constitution, vacate our charter, abridge us of the right of trial by juries of the vicinity, and diverse specified capital cases, and expose us to be seized contrary to the laws of the land, and carried to England to be tried for our lives as also the bill for establishing the papal religion in Canada, contrary to the faith of the crown and statues of the kingdom. And to these things, the people are treated in various instances with indignity, severity, and even cruelty. And notwithstanding every possible expression of a peaceful disposition in this people, consistent with the determined resolution and Christian firmness in defense of their rights and liberties, which they held dearer than life, their, prosper, their property infrequently 
is frequently and violently seized, and even their persons and lives are threatened. The inhabitants of Salem are threatened with the sword for peacefully meeting to consult upon matters of importance to themselves and the public as they had an undoubted right to do by the standing laws of the colony. A number of the most respectable inhabitants of that town were arrested and threatened with imprisonment by General Gage's order for calling the inhabitants together at the meeting foresaid. The Providence stores of powder which are deposited at Medford, were also clandestinely seized by a large detachment of troops and conveyed with all possible dispatch to Boston, as were at the same time also some field pieces at Cambridge. Entrenchments are thrown up by Gage's army, and the town of Boston becomes a garrison, and the inhabitants become prisoners at the pleasure of the troops." And notwithstanding, Gage's repeated professions of having no design against the lives or liberties of the people, everything hath the appear of hostile intentions, and near approach of blood, shed, and war. Many inhabitants, both of the town and country, are daily abused and insulted by the troops. The devotion of God's people in their worshiping assemblies is frequently interrupted, and marks of the utmost contempt are cast upon religion itself. Bodies of troops from time to time march into the country with a view, as was supposed, to alarm, terrify or awe the inhabitants to a submission. On the Sabbath, a day held sacred to God and religion by Christians, while God's people were in his house, engaged in devotion and the instituted services of religion, a detachment of these instruments of tyranny and oppression clandestinely landed at Marblehead, and making a quick march to Salem, attempted to seize upon some cannon and other military stores deposited there to be ready for use, if wanted upon any important emergency. But happily, there are they are disappointed in their designs by the spirit and resolution of the inhabitants who speedily collected upon their alarming occasion. At length, on the night of 18th of April, 1775, the alarm is given of the hostile designs of the troops. The militia of this town, the militia of this town are called together to consult and prepare for whatever might be necessary or in their power for their own and the common safety. Though without the least design of commencing hostilities upon these avowed enemies and oppressors of their country, in the meantime, under cover of darkness, a brigade of these instruments of violence and tyranny make their approach, and with a quick and silent march, on the morning of the 19th, they enter this town, and this is the place where the fatal scene begins. They approach with the morning's light, and more like murders and cutthroats than the troops of a Christian king, without provocation, without warning, when no war was proclaimed. They draw the sword of violence upon the inhabitants of this town, and with a cruelty and barbarity which would have made the most hardened savage blush, they shed innocent blood. But, oh my God, how shall I speak? Or how describe this distress, the horror of that awful morn, that gloomy day, Yonder field can witness the innocent blood of our brethren slain. And from thence does their blood cry unto God for vengeance from the ground. There the tender father bled, and there the beloved son. 
They're the hoary head and they're the blooming youth. And they're the man in his full strength and with man of years. They bleed. They die. Not by the sword of an open enemy with whom war is claimed in the field of battle, but by the hand of those that delight in spoil and lurk privily that they may shed innocent blood. But they bleed, they die, not in their own cause only, but in the cause of this whole people, in the cause of God, their country, and posterity. And they have not bled, they and they have not bled, they shall not bleed in vain. Surely there is one that avengeth, and that will plead the cause of the injured and the oppressed, and in his own way and time with both will both cleanse and avenge their innocent blood, and the names of Monroe, Parker, and others that fell victims to the rage of bloodthirsty oppressors on that gloomy morning shall be had a grateful remembrance by the people of this land and transmitted to posterity with honor and respect throughout all generations. But who shall comfort the distressed relatives, the mourning widows, the fatherless children, the weeping parents, or the afflicted friends? May the consolations of that God, who hath hitherto supported them, be still their support. Upon him may they still derive all needed supplies, in things spiritual and temporal, and yet more and more experience the faithfulness and truth, the mercy and goodness of the God of all comfort. May those that were wounded and have since experienced the tender mercy of that God, who woundeth and healeth and bindeth up, be deeply impressed with a sense of distinguishing goodness that their lives were spared while others were taken, and be persuaded more entirely than ever to devote them to God and His service and His glory. May all this place still carefully remember, notice, and improve His awful dispensation. Particularly, it concerns not only those whose substance has been plundered and whose habitations have been burnt by these lawless invaders, but also all in general, diligently and seriously to inquire wherefore it is that a righteous God is contending with us by the fire and sword of the oppressor, and wherefore it is that this awful scene of bloodshed and war was opened in this place, may we still humble ourselves before God, under a sense of the terrible things which in righteousness he had done in the midst of us. May we also be deeply impressed with the most grateful sense of the goodness of God. You guys at Red State, join us. We'll finish up just a few more minutes. Appreciate you guys listening. This is a tremendous piece of history. A message to us today. Can you see the things going on that Jonas is talking about? Rotten of the Corn Wednesday, just ahead, 23 hours. See ya. All right. Welcome back for those who will be joining us by Red State and for you who are supporting us and listening. Uh, I'll finish up this sermon as long as you want to listen. And if not, if you need to go, and um, we'll pick it up later. Jonas Clark continues, May we also be deeply impressed with the most grateful sense of the goodness of God in that so much mercy was remembered in judgment, that so few were found among the wounded and slain, and so few habitations were consumed by the fire of the enemy when so many were spared, that were equally exposed. And may this day be remembered to the glory of God and our own instruction and improvement so long as we live. But this is not by us alone that this day is to be noticed. 
This ever memorable day is full of importance to all around, to this whole land and nation, and big in the fate of Great Britain and America. From this remarkable day will an important era begin for both America and Britain. And from the 19th of April, 1775, we may venture to predict, will be dated in future history, the liberty or slavery of the American world. According as a sovereign God shall see fit to smile or frown upon the interesting cause in which we are engaged. How far the prophecy before us may be applicable upon this solemn occasion and with what degree of truth or probability it may be predicted in consequence of the present unjust and unnatural war that Great Britain shall be a desolation and England be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of America because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But America shall dwell forever, and this people from generation to generation, and the Lord himself will cleanse their blood, and he hath not already, that he hath not already cleansed. How far, I say, this prophecy may be applicable in this present interesting contest, and how far it may be accomplished in the issue thereof, God only knows, and time can only discover. But of this we are certain, if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God upon us, we shall be exalted in his due time. And if we rightly improve his dealings, accept the punishment of our sins, and religiously trust in his name, we shall see his salvation. From what hath already happened in the rise and progress, and even unto the present state of this most interesting conflict, we have the greatest reason to hope for an happy issue in the end. Though with fire and sword our enemies and oppressors have endeavored to lay waste and destroy, and though they have begun and carried on the war so far as their power could enable them with more than savage cruelty and barbarity, yet through the peculiar favor of heaven they have been able to carry their designs to effect. Yea, in most of their enterprises they have been greatly disappointed, not to say defeated and disgraced. Instead of awing the people into submission, by these measures of violence and cruelty, with which they commenced hostilities against us, as they undoubtedly expected, their spirits have been roused and awakened thereby beyond what any other means could have ever effected, and with a union and firmness exceeding the most sanguine expectations, they have armed to defend themselves and their country and to revenge the injuries received, and the innocent blood of their brethren slain. And a merciful God, in various instances, hath crowned our arms with success and victory. Not only at the acquisitions at the westward and the progress of our army in Canada, but the preservation and defense of this colony, and above all, the unexpected evacuation of the town of Boston, which at such immense cost they had fortified and had so long in their possession, and the destroying the works of their own hands, which with so much labor and expense they had erected. Bespeak the special favor of heaven to this injured and oppressed people, and appear to be happy omens of those further successes which are necessary to complete our deliverance and render this land a quiet habitation. May that God who is a God of righteousness and salvation, 
Still appear for us, go forth with our armies, tread down our enemies, and cleanse and avenge our innocent blood, and may we be prepared by a general repentance and through reformation for his gracious, powerful interposition in our behalf. And then may we see the displays of his power and glory for our salvation, which God of his infinite mercy grant for his mercy's sake in Christ Jesus Amen. Guys, I I don't know if you were seeing within this what I was seeing. But what our forefathers experienced is what we're experiencing today. Only sadly, the people are too happy to have it. The oppression, the taking of property, the violation of our rights, and it's done with a smile. Oh, it's for your good. It's for your good. It's for your safety by Democrat and Republican alike, by local representatives, by state representatives, by those in the federal government. The oppression has been on us for some time. I believe it's about to get worse, a lot worse. I think the words that come more than 200 years ago to us from Jonas Clark having seen it with his own eyes and seen the courage, the resiliousness, the manliness of those who he taught to defend others and to to show their love by their actions, not by their feelings, but by their actions, ought to come as some instruction for us in the day We live in in the very same land. God bless you guys. Uh, Talk to you in 23 hours. Lynn Taylor will be on with us. We're going to pick up Noahide laws, transfascism, and transhumanism. Yep, it's coming into your schools. It's coming into your life, even though you're out of school. Catch us then. SonsOfLibertyRadio.com. SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. See ya.